we're trying to go to the top rung. We're trying to get to the highest point of what is the best decision that we can make in life and how do we do that. And so as we're trying to decide anything, as we went through our little scenarios and dilemmas that we talked about last week, and hopefully that sparked discussion. Um, I appreciated the conversations after class as well of uh, just some things that you thought of, of uh, some little dilemmas that maybe you face or that we come across on a daily basis that makes us kind of challenge ourselves and say, well, am I being consistent or am I not? As you're making a decision, you first have to ask, okay, is this legal? Uh, that's a good place to start on any decision you make. Am I breaking a law or am I not? Now, we understand when we get to a discussion on Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, that we have certain obligations to the governing authorities and how they got into place. But if we're just talking about things maybe where we're in a conflict of virtue or a conflict of what should we really do, you start and ask, well, okay, am I breaking the law or not? Now, when we talk about Jesus today, we're going to be looking at where at times maybe it looked like he was breaking the law. But was it man's law or was it, uh, was it God's law? Then you go further and you think about who am I? What kind of virtues, what kind of characters do I want to have about myself? Characteristics do I want to have? Um, in making the statement of there are certain things I will never do. So if you say I will never do this or this, can you hold to it? in every decision of life. Uh, as we begin our discussion next week, starting on the beginning of life, our views of how we say this is how you know man is formed, and these are the rights that we have, these are the privileges, these are what we want to hold on to, this is what humanity is all about. Can we hold on to that through every stage of life? Um, and sometimes people get in a bind with that, and so we want to be consistent. So if we make a statement on the front end of life and say this is the kind of person I want to be, and this is uh, things that I will never do, you then go further. Um, what must I do? Is there an ought to us? There's uh, certain rules and regulations in place that I feel comp uh, compelled to do this or that. And a good question to ask is, what if everyone did this? What if my standard of morality or um, my process of making the right decisions, what if everybody did the same thing as me? But the top rung of where we go to, and it should be the final say because it is the standard by which we live, what does God have to say about it? What did he directly say through his words, through his prophets, uh, through the example of Jesus? What did he say? But then that is coupled along with the natural law. What has he written within our hearts? What can we respond to, and, and how do those things uh, intertwine? So that's where we were last week of how to make a decision, and we're going to just keep Going back to this, every time we come to a dilemma, every time we come to a situation, let's walk through it and see what, what comes out. If we can use this as a bit of a filter for everything, I think that we'll learn a lot. So this is going to lead me to uh, our discussion for the day. How does Jesus teach morality and ethics? Um, based off of where we've been so far and some of our discussions that we've had, what comes to your mind specifically when you think about how Jesus taught people to live and how to make decisions. What is a particular story or what is a teaching that comes to your mind? What was that? The golden rule. Okay. Why the golden rule? Okay. It puts you in the same position as everyone else. I think that's something good to hold on to. Said the Sermon on the Mount? Absolutely. Um, we'll be going there. There's a lot to gather from the Sermon on the Mount, but why did that one come to your mind? Okay. 
Okay, yeah, so uh, Jesus makes us dig in deeper in the Sermon on the Mount. He makes us really consider ourselves and what is the best decision that we should make. Um, absolutely. So going up a ladder or digging in deep, whichever way you want to look at it, he challenges that. Okay, what else comes to your mind with Jesus? Yeah, so the woman at the well in John chapter 4, that's a good place to go to. Because look at some of those beginning conversations that he has with the woman that she has with him back of, look, you're a Jewish male. (laughs) Why are you talking to me? Um, Why would you come here at this time? You know, all of these things. But then he takes the conversation. Okay, I see what you're saying, but let's go a little deeper. Let's go a little further where he gets to the more important things in life. Because if you look at her lifestyle, there were things that she was doing that were contrary to God's will and his law. And she realized part of it. She knew what was going on. And so he, he digs in deeper. I think that's a great example in John chapter 4. What else? Yeah, absolutely. The Good Samaritan. Heard a really good sermon on that recently, on the Good Samaritan, um, about uh, looking at the Jewish leaders and what... They could have been doing what they didn't. And the Samaritan, someone you would not expect, comes in and does the right thing. But surrounding that is Jesus' actual teaching of why he's using that scenario. Because they're saying, you know, who is my neighbor? Who should I really love? Is it just those that do good to us? Or is it those, you know, that can return something to me? Um, Or is it someone that really needs it? Who is my neighbor? Um, And so he used that story. Very good. What else? Okay, so uh, the account where Jesus says, render to the Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, and, I mean, you put that along with First Peter chapter 2 and uh, Romans 13. You know, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, respect to whom respect is owed, so forth and so forth. Um, that Jesus taught that, you know, I mean, using an illustration of showing the coin, well, whose face is on it? Well, it's Caesar, okay, then give it to him. It's no big deal. It's just, you know, that's the way that things are. And so, yeah, that's a, a good example of him discussing with um, some of those Jewish leaders, but ones that kind of knew um, the politics of the day as well. Uh, that's helpful. Anything else? Yeah, uh, go through the gospel accounts of any time Jesus does something on the Sabbath um, and look at what he's trying to get them to actually think about. Um, I think it had come up in one of our discussions about uh, Matthew chapter 12 with Jesus' disciples on the uh, Sabbath, taking a little bit of the grain and eating it. 
And then uh, the Pharisees get all upset that his disciples are doing that, and he's allowing them to do that. And the trump card at the very end of that is, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus could have started there. Every time he talks to somebody on the Sabbath, he could say, look, I created it. I know what it's all about. But let me teach you what's more important. But he was never actually violating the Sabbath. He was violating what man had established about the Sabbath. And, but he had to get them to think about that. He had to go in deeper and not just, hey, look, you've made up this law. That's not even what God says. It's like, okay, let's give you a scenario first, and then let's see what do you care more about. So whether it's an animal or whether it's a human being. Um, so yeah, any kind, any time that Jesus interacts with people on the Sabbath, you're going to learn a lot about ethics and how to deal with people. That's a, that's a good point. When you think about making the right decisions, we should be able to come to Jesus and say, all right, how did you teach people? What did people learn from you? You know, what is your tactic? What are your actual words that you were speaking? And how can we combine those to ourselves? Um, like George said, the Sermon on the Mount, um, this is one of my favorite sections of the Bible um, that, I, that I come to and I think about a lot. In our class that we had last quarter um, down the hallway, we talked about some of these things um, in detail. I'm going to give a short synopsis of the Sermon on the Mount and try and pull in some of those thoughts of where we were um, in another class. And so if you were in there, uh, you're getting a double dose of that. Uh, but if you've been in any class, this is going to come up for me. Uh, this is just part of it. I, I walked down to uh, Will's class. He's in the college room for the morning, and he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, too. Uh, there's a lot, to, a lot of great things in here to talk about. Um, and so I want to go very quickly for our discussion this morning through the Sermon on the Mount and see if we can nail down some things that Jesus is trying to teach us when it comes to morality and ethics so that when we get further into our lives and further into some of these big decisions, we can use Jesus' tactic uh, for ourselves. So let's talk about it. What's the first thing that you come across in the, the Sermon on the Mount? What's the first teaching? Uh, specifically Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Okay, that's where we're going to go. You can get some details from Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, a little different style and setup. Uh, I think Matthew 5, 6, and 7 gives us a really good picture of a complete sermon of Jesus. I, I think... He goes from beginning to end, even offers an invitation for you. Um, and you just package it all together, and he says, here you go. Um, preach this, and, and you're in a good place. But where does he begin with the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes. Why do you think he begins there? Okay, so it sums up a little bit about what he's uh, going to get into. Why is that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, he gives a bunch of personal characteristics that are going to help you the further in that you go. I think that's absolutely right. What else do you think of uh, with the Beatitudes? Why did he begin there? Okay. Yeah, so um, 
he makes them think in a different way about a true blessed person. Okay, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Hmm. Why did you be poor in spirit? No, I thought we should be you know, rich and you know, whatever that may be. You start lowly and then you're offered something in return. Um, he makes them think a little bit different about it. That, that's a good point. Yeah, um, so having the right virtue um, while they're understanding the consequence of the action of whatever they're about to do. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All those things put together, um, all of your comments, I, I think that sets up exactly what the Beatitudes are about. Now, if you will remember some of our intro comments and in some of our previous classes, we've looked at a few pieces of wisdom literature that begin very similar to what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are kind of these headings for the remainder of the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1 begins with, blessed is the man. There's this mentality in wisdom literature that you've got to be the right kind of person. You want to check yourself so that you can understand the rest of this. And I love that beautiful picture that is painted from the book of Psalms where he's going to step through and he's going to say, all right, where do you establish yourself? Because if you can't pass through chapter 1, the rest of the Psalms, you won't be able to pray. You won't be able to sing with the right kind of mentality and the right kind of heart. I mean, really think about that. Sit down in your personal study and go back to Psalm chapter 1 and, and couple Psalm 2 because it, it deals with the Messiah. And those are two main characters, uh, characteristics that we want to mimic throughout the Psalms. But he's saying, blessed is the man. Do you look like this? Because if you don't look like what I'm telling you is right here, you're not going to be able to get the rest of this. If you'll recall, Proverbs chapter 1 begins with a very similar doorway. He says, if you want to understand wisdom, you've got to begin with the fear of the Lord. Why would you care about being the right kind of person? Why would you care about following after wisdom unless you had a higher purpose, which is God? If you can't step through that doorway, you can't gather that information, then the rest of the book's not going to mean anything to you. I believe that Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes starts off the same way. He's challenging you before you can go any further into this test, into these challenges and these dilemmas, whatever this may be, you have to be the right kind of person. That's what the Beatitudes set up for us. Are you the right kind of person? And there's multiple different ways that you can look at um, how these are structured and why Jesus taught them in the way that he did. But look at some of the things that he does point out. Poor in spirit those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those that are persecuted. All of those things can have a spiritual um, application to them. So you can talk about you know, uh, being poor in spirit, that, talking about your condition before you have God. You've got nothing. And because of that condition that you mourn, and you realize that you need something more, uh, and so you've got to humble yourself. And then you uh, hunger and thirst after something, uh, you, after righteousness, and you allow God to fill you, and all this kind of stuff. So it has the, maybe a spiritual leaning to it, is that you can put all this into your spiritual growth process of how do you approach God and, and what is He offering in return when you go from nothing to a child of God. And He even ties a little bow on the end of, all right, if you choose to do this, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted. If you decide to live this lifestyle, people are going to have a, a bit of a challenge with you. Um, your lifestyle is going to present opportunities for you to teach, but it's also going to have a chance for people to look at you and maybe not agree with you and bring you down. Because that's what happened to Jesus. That's one of those teachings that we get from the life of Jesus that he was the most consistent, perfect and pure all the way through, and he still had people that opposed him. So we need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. But there's also the, the physical world that's attached to these Beatitudes as well, is that you have to have the right mentality anytime you do something. So, I mean, just going back to blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I don't think he's saying that, you know, the, the world's possessions will be given to you. Because you think about someone that is meek, just that one specifically. We honor that as a, a good characteristic. You know, I want to I follow after someone that is meek because they're going to be humble, they're going to be lowly, they're going to be able to listen. But does our world think that that is a, um, a good characteristic to have? You'd say, well, yeah, I mean, meekness is good, but would they say that's the kind of person that I want uh, as my, my boss? Well, yeah, I want him to be humble and look, but when you really start getting into it, people may say, well, you know, he's got to be hardened up a little bit more. He doesn't need to be a pushover. He doesn't need to be passive. And people may see meekness as, you know, just someone that can be just pushed around, but that's not the case. A true meek person, and I don't know where this quote came from, but I liked it, was um, power under control. Someone that is meek, they're able to rein that in. And when you think about they shall inherit the earth, I think there is a success rate for those people that want to really be a meek and humble and lowly person. I think uh, that is a characteristic that we need to utilize everywhere that we go, and I think that's a good way to get a leg up because it's right and it's good. It's an extension of God. And so you can look at any of these Beatitudes in the same kind of way is that the spiritual leaning to them or just how to be a good person um, in your life. And so Jesus opens up this door. He says, okay, if you can't pass through the Beatitudes, then you're not really going to be able to get everything else. All of this is similar to what he's going to say, a tagline that's put onto Jesus' ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. you got to change around so you can be where you need to be. If you want to be able to get the rest of these teachings, you're going to have to make some changes. You might not be meek. You might not be merciful. You might not be hungry and thirsting for righteousness. It's time to turn that around so that you can get the better portion. So that's where we begin. That's how Jesus uh, sets this up for us. But then he has this little bit of a transition, um, and it sets up a, a different perspective for us. Because if you look at the Beatitudes, specifically verses 3 through 10, they're all the same. Blessed are those. You know, it's, it's looking at something else, someone else. It's kind of like, that's what I want to aspire to be. Blessed are those people. It may not be you, it should be you, should be us, but it may not be us. Blessed are those, but what does verse 11 say? Blessed are you. It's actually the plural, so blessed are y'all, the, the you-alls. Um, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Think about what he's telling them. He's like, all right, so these are the characteristics that you should be obtaining. Blessed are those people. So if you pass through the gate, you pass through the, uh, the, the threshold, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why are you blessed if that happens to you? Okay, so uh, Daniel said, you know, he, he puts it along with the prophets. He said, look, the prophets already paved the way for you. If you live like the prophets, we also realize they didn't always have the best state of life. Um, you know, I think about Isaiah. Uh, after going, you know, the big showdown with Baal's prophets and all that kind of stuff, where do you find him in the very next scene in the scriptures? Terrified because Jezebel's coming after him. You find him distraught, and he thinks that he's the only one, and God has to tell him, all right, sit down, let's talk. Um, look around. Look, there's people that you don't even know about that have not bent their knee towards Baal. You're not alone. Pick yourself up. Let's go back into the city. Let's deal with this. But you look at the prophets. They kind of have this ebb and flow, some of them, of some big challenges in life. But putting it in the right perspective towards God, they succeed. Um, so yeah, if you find yourself similar to a prophet, you're you're probably on a good path. <laughs> if you can say, I, I can, I want to mimic what Isaiah was doing or Elijah and their their life of I'm not going to let the world bother me. I'm going to focus on what God has given me to do. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Why does Jesus say that the person is blessed, um, or you specifically are blessed when others revile you and persecute you? Yeah, so the, um, the topic of transformation, okay? So that's what Jesus is calling us to do is to transform ourselves. Now, in some respect, that we make that transformation at that beginning statement of, you know, all right, hey, I've got sin in my life. I need to repent. I want to live like Jesus. It's casting all those things to the side. It's what Paul was writing to the, first, uh, the church in 1 Corinthians where he says, such were some of you after going through that long list. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
you are now in Jesus. So there, there's that transformation. But then there's a maturing process as you go along uh, that you learn more and you, you find new, uh, new ways to glorify God. That it is a transformation. But a good test of this, um, what Josh was saying, is that when you find yourself at odds with the world, um, we don't belong here. We're just here for a small amount of time. If we find that we want to be here longer or that we prize things here more in comparison to spiritual things, it's the wrong kind of odds. Jesus is going to go deeper into that the further into the Sermon on the Mount you go, but it's a, it's a good test. What Jesus is saying here is you go through this, you are going to be at odds. I appreciate uh, that statement there. But in verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who are before you. He's kind of telling us, look, it's not going to be easy. There's no way of it being easy. But someone has gone before you. Jump into Hebrews chapter 11 and, and strengthen yourself a little bit. Hey, we've talked about Isaiah, but you know he was sawn in two. You know, things like that, that, hey, someone has gone before me and they paved the way. I can, I can follow them. I'm not alone in this. Someone else has gone through challenges. Someone else has overcome. Someone else has done this. Specifically, Jesus has, and we need to, to look there first and foremost. Yeah, so um, talking about the Roman law at the time where any person could be compelled to carry a Roman uh, soldier's uh, you know, bags or whatever that may be, Jesus is going to say, well, you go the second mile. There was the, the part where you have to go the first one, but the second one is what you may do. Um, it's, I see it as seeing opportunities, <laughs> you know, thinking about what more to do. What would compel you to go a second mile? You know, we'll be looking at it was like, well, he could evangelize along the way. You know, it's like, what, what would be the purpose of going a second mile? It could get someone's attention. But what does that say about us going through the midst of it? Something, you know, who am I? What's something I will never do? And how can we breach that and go further? Um, very good point. So you, you think about this, that he's opening up these characteristics, and he's giving us a doorway, and he says, all right, it's, it's going to challenge you. You have to walk one mile. But what would compel you to walk to? You may be persecuted for that. Or people may utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account. But then he goes to the next part. And I think this serves as two headings for the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. So you, you go through this doorway of the Beatitudes. And he pivots it on blessed are you. So he's now talking to everybody. He then gives us two ways of thinking. Salt and light. You have a quality of life and you have the purpose. Uh, salt has a certain quality about it. You can look at salt and you can see a pile of it sitting there and think, oh, that's salt. But you don't really know unless you taste some of it of how salty it really is. You know, it could just look like a bunch of granules sitting there and you taste it and there's nothing to it. It serves no purpose. You're not going to use it. It may look right, 
but the quality is not right. Okay? It may look right, but the quality is not right. On the other hand, you've got light. Light has a purpose. It's meant to be shown. It's meant to light up a room. You don't put it under a basket. A city set on a hill. People are going to see it. That's the life that you live. If you combine those two things together and you deal with the quality of life and the purpose of life, you get a Christian. You have to be right on the inside and not just the outside. What did the Pharisees struggle with? What does Jesus say? uh, Some of those pointed, punched moments in Matthew chapter 23. When he gets onto the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. For what? What were they doing? Okay, showing themselves to men, their hearts were far from him. What else? What are some of those illustrations that Jesus uses? Whitewashed tombs. Looks good on the outside, but on the inside is what? Full of dead men's bones. Wash the outside of the cup, but on the inside, just as dirty. They sit on Moses' seat. And they're telling you the right things, but they're not doing them. They're tithing mint and cumin, and they're, they're looking really righteous, but on the inside they've neglected justice and mercy. They should have been doing those and the external things at the same time. A true Christian, a true child of God, is concerned about the, the heart of man as well as the actions. They both have to be working together. And that's why Jesus goes into this next section of the Sermon on the Mount. And he uh, begins in verse 17. He says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Jesus is about to sound kind of heretical, especially to the, the, the Pharisees of that time. He's going to come in and they're going to say, You are out of your mind. Right? I mean, how many times do they do that? They look at Jesus and they say, You're violating Moses' law. Here's what the law says, and here's what you're doing. You should be punished. But it's not until much later in Jesus' life that he's actually punished falsely because they could never find a proper charge against him. But Jesus is saying, look, the law is going to say one thing. And I haven't come to abolish it. I'm not telling you, oh, I, you know, Moses, he was just wrong completely. No, Moses had a higher purpose. He was trying to teach you something more. So he's saying, look, don't just dismiss me by what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> don't just write me off because... Uh, it's going to sound like I'm you know, contradicting Moses. I'm not. So he says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I have come to do what? Fulfill them. How does Jesus fulfill the law? So he lives out the law, but not in the way that people expect him. Okay, what else? Has he fulfilled the law? What does that mean? Okay. The law pointed to Christ. One of the things at the end of um, Luke, Luke chapter 24, Jesus is speaking to his disciples after the resurrection. And he tells them, and he reminds them, really. They he opens up their minds so they may understand all that the law and the prophets and the Psalms 
said about him. Those three breakdowns of the Old Testament, law, prophets, and the Psalms, all of them pointed toward Jesus. But when he comes and he says, I have come to fulfill the law, he's coming to show this is what God really required of you, and you have failed to do it. Why were they failing to do the law? In that same section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. It must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. What was wrong with their righteousness? It was not complete. So yeah, so uh, Josh is saying that uh, it should all be the reason why the law existed and what it was trying to press people to do was to love. Love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is going to say that in the, um, the golden rule a little bit further on, just to look there real quick. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. We put a period there, but what, he's, what does he say following that? For this is what? The... Law and the prophets. This is what the law was talking about. I thought Chuck did a really good job, um, was it two weeks ago now, uh, on our summer series when he came in. He was talking about one of the sections here in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, coupled with where we've been uh, looking at the Ten Commandments, about, you know, it's not just murder and retaliation. There's, there's some deeper things there. It's about who you are. Um, Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. So uh, you've got the original promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. That, you know, his descendants. And the law comes in, as Paul describes it, as a guardian until we reach maturity. All right, here's the promise. Here's what God wants from us. All the way from the beginning of creation. Let's back up a little bit about we're image bearers of God. We come to the promises of Abraham that we will have you know, eternal life. We'll have all these things that are coming for us. The law comes in as a guardian of, right, you're falling short a little bit. Can I pick you up and take you where you need to be? Paul even sees this through the book of Romans. He tells us, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Now, it was a guardian. It was to take you further. I always think about the, the law as, um, you know, it looks really strict and looks really, you know, it's just always a slap on the wrist over and over again. But that's what you have to do in the maturing process. When we raise our kids, when they're younger, you're on top of them. Don't touch that. Don't taste that. Don't go there. Don't do that. Right. I mean, it's over and over again. You're having to do that so that when they get older, what do you get to say to them? You ought to know better. You ought to know better. The law, with all of its commandments, all of its rules and regulations, it's like a slap on the wrist. Don't do that. Don't go there. Paul says this in Colossians 2. Why do you still submit to these regulations? Go to something higher. Colossians 3 verse 1. Seek the things that are above. The law was just guiding us. It was our guardian. It was the slap on the wrist over and over again until you get to Christianity where God gets to look at you and say, you should have known better. All those things were in place so that you would learn what it's like to love one another and to love me first and foremost. But they forgot the heart aspect, which is exactly where Jesus is going to go next with uh, this next section in Matthew chapter 5. He deals with some major topics, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love. And they all begin, and they all look in a very specific way. Uh, these antithetical statements of, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He said all that, you know, you can read that. That's what Moses was saying. But he just didn't leave it there. It wasn't just for you to check your box of, okay, I haven't killed anybody today. I don't plan on killing anybody. I appreciate um, just Chuck had stuck out to me a little bit when he was talking about that. He's like, I've made it this far in my life. I haven't killed anybody, and I don't have any plans to do it. He said, I'm doing pretty good, but what about this and this and this? Like, we can check the box. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't, you know, uh, I haven't, you know, swore falsely. I don't know. Have I? What, you know, what are they really teaching us here? They've got the law in place. But Jesus digs in deeper and he says, but I say to you. He's already set himself up as an, an authority. If you flip over to the end of chapter 7, there's a little line when Jesus finishes his invitation of, you know, are you wise or foolish? At the end, how do people respond to this sermon? They were amazed because he taught with what? Authority. So when he comes in, he says, you have heard that it was said. Moses said this, but I say to you. He's already set himself up as the authority Everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to the judgment. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, don't take an oath at all. Don't resist the one who is evil. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In those statements, he's making you go further. It's not just the action itself. It's not just the light bulb. It's the salt. 
as well. You have to put them both together. So he's getting us to think further as we're trying to understand morals and ethics of how to make the right kind of decisions. We could spend an entire class on each one of these, and we did previously in another class, and I enjoyed our discussions we had at that point. But in each one of these, there's more than just what the law said, and it's what God intended. Go through the rest of the, the Gospels, and you'll find Jesus taking each one of these sections and breathing a little bit more into it, um, like the divorce one. It's a small section here, you know. You're looking at two verses, but you go a little bit further on into Matthew chapter 19, you get a little bit more exploded view of it, of why did you have these rules about divorce? Well, let's go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. God created man in a particular way, man and woman to be together. Don't let anyone separate that. He goes back to the original purpose. Before the law was in place, the law was just a guide of here's how you don't mistreat people. Here's how you don't leave people abandoned. Here's how you provide for your family. I had to give you all this. Let's, let's carry you along. Let's take you here. And he drops us off in the teachings of Jesus. And he looks back over all of those things. Why did Moses give us the law? Why did he have these things in place? He goes even further back. He said, what was God's real purpose for you? What's the salt quality? What's the light purpose? Why did he teach these things about divorce and about marriage? What's the original purpose? In every one of these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes you ask, salt and light. Is it just looking good or am I really good? Then this takes us to chapter 6. He begins the next part of the discussion with this in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. So he's going to check up not just the salt quality, he's going to check the light bulb now. Why are you showing the things that you're showing? Now what did he say back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16? What's the purpose of a light? To bring glory to God, not glory to man. That was never the purpose. It was never to be about us. It's always been about God. And so he, took, he talks about alms and uh, prayer and fasting. But he says, don't practice to be seen by others. You can be righteous, but you can be doing your righteousness in the wrong kind of way. You have two things to choose from, the world and the cross. You can't serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. So you have to make a choice. You have to judge yourself accordingly and you have to hold one another accountable in the right kind of way. Knock, seek, find. Choose. You've got two roads ahead of you. One is narrow and one is wide. Which one will you be on? Check your, the, the quality of your tree. What's the fruits that are coming from it? Are you healthy? Are you bearing the right things? Or are you diseased and producing the wrong kind? You'll stand before a judge. You'll either enter in or you will be without. So where will you build your house? Will you be wise and on the Lord or will you be foolish and have destruction? Allow these to spur us on as we go into next week, as we think about thinking and being the right kind of person, specifically as we get into um, abortion. So that's what I've got.